Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We are beginning our embark of Philippians. And I want you to notice with me in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, what I've been pointing out for the last couple of weeks is the leadership structure of the church at Philippi. Paul says there in chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with or beside the overseers, a reference to elders, and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said over the last couple of weeks, we've been centering our minds upon the phrase overseers and deacons, a reference to elders and deacons. And we have thus far talked about the calling of an elder. The calling of an elder... This man who is called with three different terms in the New Testament that are interchangeable, elders, of course, pastors, and overseers, as it's translated here in the English Standard Version of our Bibles. Overseers meaning guardians or bishops, those who are overseeing the ministry of the church as spiritual leaders. And this is so very Important. All of these terms, and of course even a few more, are terms which constitute the highest levels of leadership in the church. And they become for us then the internal structure of what a man of God is to be and to do. Now admittedly, this is a very high and holy aspiration. One in which a man does not enter into lightly. If someone wanted to determine whether or not he should pursue such a position or a function or a role in the church, what is involved in this office, this work. And I told you that there was, in a sense, four ways that you could look at this. The character, uh, or excuse me, the calling, and then the character or conduct of an elder, his capabilities his creed or his doctrine, and his commitment. And we've been talking about that first and foremost area, the calling of an elder. The calling of an elder. Do you realize that when I use that term, the calling of an elder, I'm only talking not only specifically about the elder, of course, but generally speaking, all of us are called. All of us are called. We're called to salvation. We're called by an imperatival command. Come to Jesus. Come to faith in Christ. Repent of your sins. Place your faith, your confidence, your trust in Christ and Christ alone. That's a calling. In fact, so much so, Paul tells the Thessalonians that if someone doesn't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's to be damned. He's to be cursed. He says to the Corinthians at the last part of one of his letters, That if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, let him be damned, cursed, consigned to judgment. 
The idea of whether or not someone can take or leave the gospel is really, frankly, not an option. Now, they may in this life choose to reject Jesus Christ ultimately and finally, as though it appears to them to be an option, but the turmoil that awaits them is a forever Christless eternity because someone did not choose to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. They chose not to love the Lord Jesus, and the Bible's answer to them is that they will be accursed forever. So when I talk about the calling of someone, it's within the wider construct of the idea of the calling of God to salvation. That's a very special calling. The calling of an elder, it's a very special calling. It's a kind of calling to lead those who are confessing Christ. So this idea of calling is very, very important. Last time I told you that there was a downward call from God. And that that downward call, just like the call to us of our own salvation, is the call to be a slave, the call to serve, the call to the office of overseer or deacon. And if someone says, well, I'm not sure about this calling for my life, and I include it as a second aspect, what we might call the inward call. There's a downward call from God Himself. He calls people to salvation. He calls people to service. And there's an inward aspect that allows me to know that I might very well be one of those called to the office of elder or deacon. And then I said there was a sideward call. In other words, the people beside you see in you what appears to be the kinds of gifts and callings and affirmations and confirmations and appointments to this particular office or role, whether it be elder or deacon. And then fourthly, there is very much a sense of an outward call, that is, that your ministry appears to be in their eyes, those who are looking at your life, to be very effective. His ministry of teaching, for instance, is very effective. He has what appears to be the character of an elder. And you say, well, what is the character of an elder? Well, it's not specifically spelled out here in Philippians 1, but Paul does spell it out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And so I'd like for you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so this morning we move away from the calling of an elder to the character or the conduct of an elder. Okay, we've talked now in two messages about the calling of such a man. Now we're going to talk about his character, about his conduct. And in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 and following, and then in Titus chapter 1 and following, we'll see these. Let me read them for you. You follow along as I read 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder or pastor, he desires a noble task or a good work. Therefore, an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. 
He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And then look over at Titus, just a couple of Pauline epistles over. Titus chapter 1. We call 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus the pastoral epistles because they have so much to do about the ministry of an elder, a pastor, an overseer. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Paul tells Titus, just as he told Timothy, similar words. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, notice the plural, in every town. So plural elders for every town congregation. As I directed you, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, that is an elder, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So you see three times in 1 Timothy 3, once there and twice here in Titus 1, that phrase that a man must be above reproach. That's what we might call the, the overarching aspect of all of these particular character qualifications. It's almost as though the idea of being above reproach is a banner title to speak of an elder. He is above reproach. A leader in God's flock is first and foremost a godly man, and what he does is manifested consistently from his character as a godly man so that he is above reproach. Any effectiveness of a minister of Jesus Christ, any giftedness, any ability that an elder has will only be reflective of his character as a godly man. He's above reproach. In my study at home, I have a plaque on my wall that was given to me that is a quote from Charles Jefferson, a great preacher in New York City, died in 1937. And that he, this is what he wrote in his book, a book to which I have referred to hundreds of times, entitled, The Minister as Shepherd. This is what he says, It is by no means easy for a young man to become a shepherd. And he ought not to be discouraged if he cannot become one in a day or a year. 
An orator, he can become without difficulty. A reformer, he can become at once. In criticism of politics and society, he can do a flourishing business the first Sunday. But a shepherd, he can become only slowly and by patiently traveling the way of the cross. Every time I go into that study, I read that quote. I hang it so prominently before my eyes that I am reminded of it time after time after time because the shepherd can become a shepherd only slowly and that by traveling the way of the cross. That's what's true of all those who aspire to the office of elder or should be. I just gave you a list that if you combined both of those passages, you would have about, give or take, 21 character qualities. 21. If I were to ask for the raising of the hand, for all of us, including myself, who aspires, given what I've just read, to all of these things with gladness and joy, especially so that you and I could stand on a platform and say, I want you to know that this is my life. This is what I aspire to do. This is my hope and help as God enables me of being characteristically a godly man. And it starts, my beloved friends, with this phrase, he must be above reproach. Look back at 1 Timothy. Verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. Did you notice? That's a command. Must be. He must be above reproach. In other words, if he's not above reproach, he's not qualified to serve as an elder. And as I reminded you, Titus 1.6, if any man is above reproach, and then it says again, For a third time, he must be above reproach. It's an imperative. It's not an option. He absolutely must be above reproach if he is to serve in Christ's church as an elder. It's very, very clear. And that this is the first on the list, which, as I said, gives gives us the overarching sense that all of the other character qualities that he lists, both in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, flow out from this banner, this moniker, uh, this logo, this standard above reproach. You say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be above reproach? Well, it could be something like this. The man of God must not be open to attack or criticism, either in terms of his Christian life in general or in any of the following qualifications. He is irreproachable. It means he can't objectively be charged with something that would render him as not above reproach. It's very interesting. This um, particular Greek word, he must be above reproach, above reproach, that kind of idea. Lombano is the word. It's got the little epi on the front of it, which intensifies the word. And then it has an alpha privative on the front of that, which negates the word. Not above reproach. He's a person 
who cannot be blamable in anything overtly, outwardly, for which they could say he's disqualified. One of the better books on this subject of eldership, well known to the church at large by Alexander Strock, a very dear friend of mine and a very able expositor of Christian truth. Thank God for him. Ministers in Colorado. He's written a book called Biblical Eldership, and he says this, To be above reproach means to be free from any offensive or disgraceful blight of character or conduct, particularly as described in verses 2 through 7, 1 Timothy 3. When an elder is irreproachable, critics cannot discredit his Christian profession of faith or prove him unfit to lead others. He has a clean moral and spiritual reputation. Even another writer said it this way, does not mean that someone is free from every fault, for no such man could ever be found, but one marked by no disgrace that could diminish his authority, he should be a man, and I like this, of unblemished reputation. Unblemished reputation. I did an interesting study. I looked at various translations, how they might try to capture this idea of being above reproach, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Here are some related words if it helps you understand what it means to be above reproach. Blameless, unaccused, free from fault, without blemish, undefiled, free from contamination, spotless, unstained. Now I know, you're just like me. In fact, maybe I'm more like me than you're like me. Because I'm saying to myself, who qualifies? Who qualifies for that? Blameless, unaccused, free from fault, without blemish, undefiled, free from contamination, spotless, unstained. Listen to Job 1.1. Apparently, he qualified. Job 1.1. This is what God Himself said about Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. The inspired Word of God says about a human being, though sinful he is, and the book of Job goes on to reflect that sinfulness, even to the point where God said to him, uh, out of the whirlwind, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? To which then Job, after God gave him a spiritual spanking, said, I repent in dust and ashes, right? It wasn't perfect. But God says he was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. What about Noah? Genesis chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and that's the Old Testament way, favor, of talking about grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then verse 9, I love this. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. It is possible. It is very possible for someone to be a blameless man or woman. Nehemiah perceived from some men what they were all about trying to do to injure him. And there, apparently, from these men, sent to Nehemiah another man 
to, sent to ensure that he wouldn't remain above reproach. That's chapter 6, verse 13. It says this, For this purpose, this is what Nehemiah said, For this purpose he, this man, come to destroy me. He was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Nehemiah 6.13 Which means then, that it's one thing for you to try to be above reproach, when there are also detractors and enemies and devilish persons who want to ensure that you're not above reproach. So you don't just have the idea that you're trying to be above reproach before God. You're like Noah, you want to walk with God. You're like Job, you want to be a blameless man before God. But you also have people who want to bring you down so that you will not be such a person. And this isn't a characteristic, by the way, this being above reproach, which is reserved for the office of elder. And this is where it gets very interesting for you and me. Because here is what you must expect of me and your elders. You must expect that I and they are above reproach. Irreproachable, blameless, sterling characters, godly men. Not perfect men. It's not the perfection of my life, and it must be the direction of it. Right? And that's what you must expect. Even as I stand here and say, this is what you must expect of me. Shivers run down my spine if I don't do this. If I don't live out the character of what these passages say. Philippians 1.1, I'm to be an overseer. Not of Philippi, but of the Caneo Valley. 1 Timothy 3, I'm to be above reproach. Titus 1.6 and following, I'm to be a must-be-above-reproach pastor and elder. And that's what you should reasonably expect of me and others. Reasonably expect. And do you realize that if someone says, now wait a minute, wait a minute, if that's true, and if you're supposed to be this irreproachable elder, pastor, overseer, guardian, you're supposed to live out these character qualities that are being listed here, if that's the case... And if that's what we as a congregation can reasonably expect of you, does that put you in a category that's different from us? Does that mean that we can be reproachable? Does that mean that we can be blamable? Does that mean that there's a kind of setting up of a strict disjuncture between ourselves and you? And somehow, and in some ways in the history of the church... You've had what I think is a not-so-subtle shift of people who assume that they, even if they live like the devil, can still expect this guy or his elders or the church's elders to live like a saint. In other words, if I wear the robe, if I uh, don the clerical collar, then I'm setting myself up differently than the congregation And they can reasonably expect me to live out everything I preach. And maybe they have it far easier. But did you just as you can legitimately and should expect me to live what I preach and to be qualified in this way, including and especially being above reproach, that that's exactly what's expected of you? You say, no way. No way, Jose. 
That's what you're supposed to do, and we're going to hold you to it. (laughs) Did you know that the Bible has more passages about the general run-of-the-mill believer, the pew-sitting Christian, and his need to be above reproach, her need to be above reproach, than it does these couple of passages about me? Let's study them together. You thought that this was a sermon about the elder, didn't you? Now, this is a sermon about you. Philippians 1. Philippians chapter 1. And I'm going to give you passages which you're going to write down or memorize or highlight or star or circle. And you're going to say, I am called to do exactly what Lance is called to. I am called to do exactly what Joe and Jim and Joel, and Jason are called to. That's what they're called to. If if Trent Valadares, if Joel Tiefel, if Jason Spadaro, if Jim Hines, if Joe Yandel, if Lance Quinn, we're called to live this irreproachable life, so are you. Philippians chapter 1. Notice Paul's prayer in verse 8. God is my witness. How I yearn for you all, of course that's talking about all the Philippians, with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, notice this, verse 10, so that, for the purpose that, in order that, you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and what? Oh my, I gotcha, I gotcha, right there that you would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You're to be blameless. And just as I'm supposed to be blameless before you, you're supposed to be blameless before the watching world, including me, so that we can show, adorn the gospel of God for this unbelieving world. So that they can say, there is somebody that's living rightly, Somebody's living a holy life. That's that's someone that I can aspire to because he or she is pure and blameless and we are so for the day of Christ. How about chapter 2 of Philippians? Verse 12 and 13. And when we get here, we are going to camp out on this passage big time. When we get here, I say. In several years when we get here, I say. Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that is, work out your own sanctification with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You have a responsibility to work out your sanctification in this world with fear and trembling, because you know it's actually God who's working in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning or disputing. Verse 15, here it is, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse or twisted generation. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, just, just as I wouldn't ask for my own hand to be shown upward to say, am I perfect? No. Am I still sinful as I'm battling the evil of this world? Yes. But here's the goal. 
that we all would be, Philippian believers, blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Irreproachable lights shining in a crooked and perverse world. So that's our goal. That's the standard. To be blameless and innocent. How about Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Our election to grace, according to verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that for the purpose that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, how, how can I be blameless? I got sin in my life. How can I be blameless? The answer is because I'm working with all of my might according to the power that works within me, the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead to destroy such sinful proclivities, to do away with such sinful temptations so that I would be holy and blameless before Him. That's why I was elected to grace in the first place. Look at chapter 5 of Ephesians. If you want to know what Jesus is doing in you and me, according to Ephesians 5, here it is. Jesus is the groom. We are the bride. We're the church. And this is what we are supposed to be all about. Look at verse 26. Christ, according to verse 25, loved the church, and He gave Himself up for the church, Here's that purpose clause again, verse 26, that so that for the purpose that he, Christ, the groom, might sanctify her, the bride, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself, to Christ, to the Father, to the Spirit, in splendor, notice the attributes here, without spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, or holy and blameless. This is the process. This is is the goal. This is the end. We're not there. Nobody's there. Nobody's arrived, but that's the goal. And notice, without spot or wrinkle. I got spots. You know, and the older I get, I got more wrinkles on the outside. The goal is not to have as many wrinkles on the inside. To remove the spots on the inside. Look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 22. Colossians 1:22. You say, "Yeah, you're right. There are a lot more verses about me than about you." Yes. Well, I'm a part of you. In fact, it's a double-barrel shotgun about me. I'm supposed to be that up front. I'm supposed to be that as an elder. And I'm a part of the congregation. I'm one of the fellow members. They got me coming and going. For you, you just got a series of commands about you as a member. Colossians 1.22 He has now reconciled in His body, the body of His flesh, by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Above reproach. Hey, this is not just for the preacher. It's not just for the elder. It's not just for the deacon. This is for you. You're you're to be above reproach. I'm to be above reproach as a member of this congregation. 
He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Boy, this is, this is phenomenal. You see, that's why James 1.27 says this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Unstained. You don't have anybody who's a co-worker. You don't have a neighbor. You don't have a good friend. You don't even have someone in your own family or extended family who's saying, that's a Christian? That, that, that's a believer? Count me out. Why? Because they're no different than I am. I see the ready lies, the, the, ready, the ready sins, the ready issues of their life. I, they're readily perceptible. They're, they're there. They're visible. I see it when they're, they're always angry. They're cursing. They're, they're taking the Lord's name in vain. They're stealing. They're lying. I don't see any difference there. Well, it's because you're not keeping yourself unstained from the world. How about 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14? 2 Peter 3, 14. I mean, really, folks, if you look at the whole of the New Testament, there are many passages, and the ones I'm giving you are explicitly talking about being irreproachable. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, 2 Peter 3, 14, since you are waiting for these, you're waiting for the end, you're waiting for the day of the Lord, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish, and at peace. It's God's Word. It's God's will. It's what He says. It's what He asks us for. Remember back in, in Titus 1 where it says you've got to be above reproach? Notice what Titus also says in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Show yourself, Titus 2, 7, in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame. You're not put to shame. He's put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. You see, that's it. That's it. What you want the world to say is something like this. Well, look, I don't like their message that i got to deal with my sin. I don't like this gospel talk that they keep giving me. I don't like the fact that they say you've got to trust Jesus and not yourself. I don't like the idea that you could either go to heaven or hell. I don't like that they are saying you've got to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But one thing I cannot say is that their life doesn't live up to their creed. It does. That's a holy man right there. That's a godly woman. That's a person who aspires to godliness. I tell you what, I may not like what they tell me, but I can't argue against that life. I can't. That life is stellar. That life is an aspiring life to godliness. So that our opponent has nothing evil to say about us. You know, the Apostle Paul, who had much regret, he had much regret, he says in Acts 24, 16, I always endeavor to maintain a blameless conscience both before God and man. What an aspiration. What an aspiration. I always endeavor to maintain a blameless conscience, a good conscience before both God 
and man. He's covering it both ways. My horizontal relationship, my vertical relationship with God. And you know, even in his pre-conversion, according to Philippians 3.6, he said, as to the law found blameless. You say, well, how can both be true? How can he aspire to blamelessness as a Christian And how can he say about himself as a non-Christian as to the law found blameless? You know what he was saying in Philippians 3.6 when he was giving his testimony? Outwardly speaking, externally, I could not have had anybody say anything bad about me as to my obedience to the law. But you know what he says in Philippians 3.6? But I tell you this, it was outward only. I mean, there are a lot of people that might be able to say with some level of satisfaction to them and some sort of evidence convincing you that they're upright, that they're very moral people. I have some people in my family. They are loving. They are gracious. They are kind. They stand uprightly, or so it seems. And you might say about them as to the law found blameless. But God doesn't acquit us just from what it looks like on the outside. It's what's on the inside. And you know what Paul said was on the inside? About himself? Dung. Refuse. That's what was on the inside. He thought everything was in his credit column. You know, I was a a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Benjamite. I was a Pharisee. As to the law found blameless, I mean, if you wanted someone to actually stack up the pedigree with an outstanding, upright life, I'm the guy. Everything's in my credit column. But what he realized was as it came to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, all of the stuff he thought was in his credit column was actually in his debit column. Because he saw all of those things as something that would potentially, or if not potentially, even actually make him acceptable to God. And God showed him on that Damascus road when he slammed him down onto the turf, everything that you thought was credit is debit. Because you were trying to use all of those things, both outwardly and inwardly, that you were a swell guy. And that I would welcome you into my kingdom just because you're that good. And isn't that what so many people think today? And when you talk to them, well, but I don't murder. I I, I don't steal. And then if you say, let's go a little inwardly. Have you ever lusted? Have you ever lied? Have you ever misrepresented yourself to others? Have you ever had a a wicked thought? Have you ever done any evil deeds whatsoever? Maybe not stealing, maybe not carousing, maybe not killing, maybe not murdering. But have you done anything that wouldn't be worthy of the perfect standard of the law of God? Well, sure, who hasn't? Okay, well then you're out. You're out. Because everything that you think is going to credit you is actually the stuff that's going to condemn you on the day of judgment. Because none of those things, however perfectly you may have tried to live them out, will ever be perfect. And according to the book of James, if you sin in one way, you're guilty of the entire law breaking. So, 
our life as Christians is to acknowledge before such a human court that we're not only not perfect, but actually our imperfections in our debit columns drive us to Jesus Christ. The only one who had everything perfectly in the credit column and who actually gave up all such privileges to die an ignominious death on a cross so that he could pay the penalty for the sins that you and I actually deserved. Which means that he takes upon me my sin and I take upon him his righteousness. And it's a righteousness not of my own. It's not derived from anything that I'm doing. I can't. I'm guilty of all. And so, when I talk to people and they say, well, it seems like you as a preacher of the gospel live a a very upstanding life. What do I say? Not I, but Christ who lives in me. Every credit I have and every acceptance I will gain before God is the acceptance that Jesus Christ has died for the sin of my life, past, present, and future. And the only hope that I have of seeing Christ one day is through being declared righteous by Him for the death He died, for the salvation I needed from my sin, and in my gratitude to God and in my effort to work out my sanctification with fear and trembling, I'm trying to show the world a kind of blameless life, not for what I have been doing, but for the cross of Christ, and now what He engenders in and through me by grace, so that I could show the world a blamelessness for the glory of God in Christ. That's the gospel. That's the blamelessness that He's talking about there. Look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 5. Revelation 14, 5. This is amazing. Here's a, here's a picture even apocalyptically, even in the future, chapter 14, then I looked and behold, verse 1, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. That's Christ. And with Him, 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And I love this, verse 5, And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. What a goal. What a goal. I'm not a liar. I'm blameless. I'm blameless. Jude 24, you know that doxology at the end of Jude's epistle, verse 24? Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. 
I mean, blamelessness is the goal, my friends. Now you see that the standard of blamelessness, of holiness, of being above reproach is not just for the preacher. It's not just for the elders. It's for every church member. It's for everybody who aspires to live such a blameless life. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. This is what we aspire to be like, our own Savior, our Lamb. 1 Peter 1.19 The precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Hebrews 9.14 says He offered Himself without blemish to God. Folks, I know this is a high standard. This is actually a high standard for everyone. You, you, you thought the sermon was about me today. Well, it is, as I stand with you, as I'm among you. I'm nothing special. Ask my wife. I'm nothing grandiose. Ask the kids. That's why when people come up and say, do I call you doctor, reverend? I say, I'm not even a doctor. I'm not even a nurse. I'm just Lance. I'm just the one who stands to serve you out of my giftedness, out of my experience, so that you and I together could pursue holiness unto the Lord. To be blameless in His sight. And when we fail, and when we sin, we seek forgiveness, we look, we examine, and we say to each other, this is what I want to do. I want to be blameless. Give me another shot at it. Allow me to pursue it because I blew it today. I was reading with some brothers in our men's study on Saturday morning at 7, this great book that we're going through called An Infinite Journey by Andrew Davis. It's subtitled, Growing Toward Christ-Likeness. And don't you know this fits perfectly with the sermon? He says this, We need to spare nothing in our efforts to reach high and personal Christ-likeness. We need to take on sin patterns and defeat them by the power of the Spirit. We need to make ambitious resolutions in Scripture memorization and prayer and character development and see those goals met to the glory of God. We should yearn to reach the end of our days here on earth knowing that we never rested in our efforts to grow to maximum Christ-likeness. We should fear lying on our deathbed and groaning knowing that we let some lust or sin habit rob us of the best years of our lives on earth. We should always be growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ so we can lead as many souls to Christ as He permits. We should run the internal race with perseverance so we can run the external race with eternal fruitfulness more and more souls for Christ. That's the goal. And by God's grace, we'll get there. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it, perfect it, mature it, bring it to its end in the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for your wonderful admonition of us, myself included. And may this be the hope, and may our elders lead out in such. 
for your glory, for your praise, and for the greatness of your name, O blameless one. In Jesus' precious name and for whose sake we pray, amen.